You are welcome to our Wednesday evening service and we would like to straight away go to our message. Uh, we were trying to see the importance of doctrine before we begin on our message, the biblical doctrine of foreordination. Doctrine is very, very important and the scriptures bear that out. Even as we see other scriptures also here in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. As I, be, uh, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That shows that there were other doctrines that were Pro, uh, being propagated apart from what Paul taught Timothy. There is a way that Paul t uh, taught Timothy. Paul was called of Jesus Christ. He was called of God. And uh, he received a lot of revelations from the Lord. And he knew the right doctrine. He knew the right interpretation of scriptures and he interpreted those <clears throat> doctrines to Timothy. So he's instructing Timothy, let them not teach any other doctrine, any other teaching. So doctrine is important. It's not just I can believe anything, I can believe any doctrine, I can have anything. That won't work. Uh, you will be messing yourselves up. It is important that you have the right doctrine. So Timothy was to charge some that to teach no other doctrine. Uh, what Timothy taught, he received it from Paul. And Paul got it from the Lord. Then still, First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Say, study. Give attendance to reading. In other words, Timothy was to study, was to read what he had been taught by Paul. It is important. It's not just believing anything. It was important that Timothy preaches and teaches others to preach what Paul taught. Paul was an apostle. He was not one of the original apostles. But Paul got revelations from the Lord. So he had it right. So he says, give yourself to doctrine. Make sure that you are teaching the right doctrine. He didn't want Timothy to teach a false doctrine because false uh, doctrine would negate his worship. We were talking about that in the last service. So doctrine is really important. Timothy was to give himself to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. This shows us that doctrine is important. Then in verse 16, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Right there again, doctrine, doctrine. Doctrine is important. You cannot in, uh, neglect doctrine. I said doctrine divides people. Doctrine is bad. Let's talk about the love of God. Let's talk about the love of Christ. Truly, we should talk about the love of God. It's important. God is love. But on top of that, we should have the right doctrine. We should not just embrace any doctrine. Oh, ignore. Say, doctrine will divide us. Uh, I said, uh, I've been saying that true fellowship is uh, uh, occurs when people of that believe the same doctrine. That's when you have genuine true fellowship or genuine unity. Unity is not just coming together, various religious organizations coming together, but what do you believe? All right, it is good, it's nice that you have come together, you have uh, gathered yourselves together, but what do you believe? What do you teach when it comes to the baptism, water baptism? What do you teach when it comes to Holy Spirit baptism? What do you teach 
when it comes to the Godhead? What do you teach when it comes to hell? What do you teach when it comes to the body of Christ? Do we all, we who have gathered, if you have gathered yourselves together, do you teach the same way? Do you explain the scriptures pertaining to those doctrines the same way? If not, then there is not genuine unity. It's just coming together like people on a football pitch. They come together, but they are in different minds. They have gathered, you see, a large crowd, and you say, my, what a, what, what a large crowd that has come to watch this game. But they are not one. They have different minds. They, they are from different places. They have different minds. <clears throat> Each one believes their way. And we can't do that in religion. We can't do that when it comes to faith. When we say we want unity, we want real unity where we believe doctrine alike, where we interpret doctrine alike, and there is no division. So, give yourself unto doctrine, continuing them. For in so doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Doctrine can save us. As you have been saying, doctrine spells out who we are. Who we are. It spells out very, very clearly who we are. It tells us who we are. And so somebody should understand uh, the right doctrine. So Timothy was to take heed to the doctrine he had been taught. Doctrine is important. Uh, we could read, look at many other scriptures if we had all the time. There are so many scriptures, other scriptures that we haven't looked at that show that the doctrine is important. Uh, but uh, we don't want to digress so much from our subject, from our lesson. Uh, we are going to study the biblical doctrine uh, of our nation. This message was preached by Reverend Lloyd L. Goodwin uh, of Des Moines, Iowa. It's a message from the scriptures, like I've already said, uh, there are very few profound men. Uh, we are living in a world where every preacher seems to say to himself he's a profound man. Every preacher claims he has been uh, called in a profound way and we give ourselves gifts. But uh, it isn't so. That would be confusion if every man was profound. Some other preachers uh, some other ministers are uh, to listen to others. They have to humble themselves and learn from other ministers. I, per one, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a profound man, uh, but I have been a student of somebody. I've been a student of Lloyd L. Goodwin, the way he teaches and divides the word. And so this message that I'm going to share with you uh, was preached by Reverend Lloyd L. Goodwin of Des Moines, Iowa. And it is a very good message. Uh, certainly I might not preach it or lay it down like he himself did it, but I'll try my best to give it to you almost like he gave it. And it's a message that can bless your soul. And if preachers, we can humble ourselves that God has called some men with a call that is above the rest of us if we listened to them. If we just uh, became their students and listened and learned, we would do, uh, spread the word of God in a bigger way than every one of us claiming, I, have, I want to be original, I don't want to listen to some other place, I've also been called of God, I want to be original, God has given me a call and so... He has given me this. I'm not going to sit under another, another person. I'm going to be myself. Well, uh, if God has called you in a profound way, bless God, you are blessed. But some of us acknowledge that we must listen to some men that have been called in a profound way. Lloyd L. Goodwin was an apostle, and the Lord reopened his understanding when it came to many scriptures and many doctrines in the Bible and listened and sat under him and listened to messages as he taught. And it is a blessing, it's a pleasure for me to teach uh, these messages. 
and share with you and I trust you will be blessed. So we are going to start on this biblical doctrine of forward ordination. Now with all the studies of the Bible that we have done or that we have in our fellowship, the body of Christ, we still are limited. Uh, we don't claim to have everything. We don't claim to have it all. We are still limited. And many times we still look through a glass darkly. Even Paul, that was revealed to so many things pertaining to the scriptures. Uh, he still made a statement that we see through a glass. He didn't have it all. Nobody. You need to be a God to have everything right and to have it all. Uh, we don't claim to, do, to, to have that. But I can assure you, we have a lot of truth in this fellowship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also am known. The point we want is that we see through a glass darkly. There are areas that we don't yet understand, areas in the word of God that are not yet clear to us, but a lot of it the Lord has revealed in this fellowship, a lot of areas the Lord has revealed. So as we begin the study of this lesson, there are questions to ask ourselves. I want us to ask ourselves some questions. When we talk about foreordination, things being foreordained, they happen, but uh, there is something behind, an entity behind all these major events. Let us ask ourselves these questions. Is God at the mercy of history? Or does God make history? In other words, when we say God is at the mercy of history, there are things, events, major events. When I'm, I say events, I mean major events. There are events that take place in this world. And if God is at the mercy of history, then he has no control. Uh, he just finds himself or just looks at events as they happen, and he has no part in it. He has no control of it or over it. And when he's planning, he's to plan, is to align himself with these events that he can't control. Then that means that God is at the mass of events, of history rather, because things are transpiring in this earth or in the universe and God has no control, God has no part. Things are just happening, transpiring. Uh, maybe like some historians say, there is uh, <clears throat> a revolutionary force that is causing events to happen and God does not have any part <clears throat> in it. That's why we are asking, <clears throat> pardon me, is God at the mercy of history? Or does God make history? If it is God that is making history, then every event, major event taking place in this world, uh, God has a hand in it, whether it is earthquakes, floods, uh, whether it is hurricanes, uh, whether it is war, uh, whether it is technological advancement, uh, whatever is taking place in this world. Uh, if God is making history, then God has a hand in it. God has... Uh, is making, is allowing it to happen. 
Is God, so, is God at the mass of history? Or does God make history? We will find out. So, we would like to say <clears throat> history, history is being made by God. Are you a child of God? Or you are one of these that don't believe that there is a God and things are just evolving, uh, this, the theory of evolution. Uh, but if you are a child of God, you know history is being made by God. Some believe that somehow God foresaw what would happen. They agree that God foresaw what would happen. And so he made plans to harmonize with what would happen. Uh, <clears throat> that would not that doesn't sound as though God has any power. Just foresaw what would happen, and then he said, well, I can see what is going to happen ahead. I can see there is going to be war in the Middle East. Now I must align myself to suit in what is happening, to align myself so that... Uh, I can get what I want to happen. It's good to agree, it's good to believe that God foresaw what would happen, but he is, he doesn't uh, make his plans to harmonize uh, with what would happen. Another question to ask ourselves is, how sovereign is God? How all-powerful is God? And how free is man? What liberty, what freedom does man have? How sovereign is God? And how free is man? If God is at the mercy of history, then history must be God's God. If God is at the mercy of history, the events that are happening in the world is at their mercy, then history is God's God. History becomes the boss, and um, God becomes <clears throat> the subject. If God is at the mercy of history, then events as they are unfolding is the result of an evolutionary force, an evolutionary force at work. Then that is evolution taking place. If God is at the mercy of history, then events as they are unfolding is the result of an evolutionary force at work. In other words, God has no control. Everything transpiring in the world is as a result of an evolutionary force at work. If so, God must submit himself to the events of history because he has no control over the events that are taking place. So he must submit himself to the events of history and then try to work in harmony with unfolding events. So like a man, you look in the sky and you see it is going to rain. And you have no control to stop that rain. So what you do, you must work your plans. It's going to rain, maybe in 15 minutes. Then if you had spread some crops in the courtyard or you have washed and clothes uh, uh, on the line, uh, then you must align yourself 
with that incoming rain. It is going to spoil your crops or it's going to spoil your clothes. And therefore, you align yourself. You say, I must remove these clothes before the rain pours. It, that is because you have no control over, this, over that rain. Therefore, you as a human being, you make your plans. You say, I will not go out because in 15 minutes it will be raining and the rain will get me on the way and I will be wet and I can easily catch a cold. So whatever you are planning, whatever your plans are, you are aligning, you, you, you align those plans with this that you have no control over. The coming rain, you can't stop that rain. You have no power to stop that rain. So you align your events, your activities to march in with what you cannot control. That's why we say for God, if so, God must submit himself to the events of history and then you try to work in a harmony with unfolding events. Another question. Did God see that Judas would betray the Lord? Or did God plan or did God's plan depend on someone betraying the Lord? Did God foresee that Judas would betray the Lord? Or did God's plan depend on someone betraying the Lord? Did God's plan depend on someone betraying the Lord? Did God see that Judas would betray the Lord? Or did God's plan, or did God plan that someone would betray the Lord? And Judas happened to be the individual that fulfilled that position. In other words, the activities of Judas. Was God in it? Or things just happened? If God is at the mass of history, then history becomes the God of our God. History then has become the God of our God. These are things that we must understand to where we can be, have faith and confidence in God when we know what he can do. Our God is so small to some people. The God we believe in is so small, he has no control of any event taking place. He's also just shocked that, like one doctor commented to me one time, some years ago, that the Gulf War shocked God. He was shocked that that war took place. That makes God a very, very small God. Very, he has very little power. Either God is at the mass of history or God is making history. We must, it is either that or the, either this or the other. Either God is at the mass of history. What is in your mind? What would you like to believe? Is God at the mass of history or God is making history? To some people, God is at the mass of history. He forces what is going to come, then he aligns his plans with what is going to come. What he has seen is going to come. This is going to happen. Let me align my plans in what, with what is going to happen. Oh, God really makes history. He allows these events to come. He allows things to happen. So, is God, either God is at the mercy of history or God is making history. History is the result of what God has intended it, has intended for it to be wonderful. History is the result 
of what God has intended for it to be. You know, we have made our, our, the God so small and ve with very little power. Somehow we think things are happening by this theory of evolution, and things are just evolving, evolving. That is a wrong understanding. History, if you're a child of God and you believe, and you know God is omnipotent, he has all the power, he has all the knowledge, God is great, history is the result of what God has intended it, has intended for it to be. That means God exerts sovereign influence. God exerts sovereign influence. God is powerful. He's not a God that has very little power, that has no control over events happening in the world. That's why many times we get worried. I don't know whether God will deliver me out of this. I don't know whether God will do this for me. And we don't have faith in God because we have made our God so small, so tiny, and with very little power. Some events are too hard for him to do. Some events are too hard for him to, to, to accomplish. Can God, can God feed us in this wilderness? Can God protect us from this COVID-19? Can God really protect us? Oh, he has no power. Can God stop this disease? Uh, this virus, can God? Our God is so small, we have made God so small. We are believers, but we have made our God so small. That's bad. There is nothing too hard when you read the scriptures. There is nothing that is too hard for God to do. Uh, God can do a lot. The Lord can do a lot of things. God has all the power, but we have made him small. Uh, we don't believe God can supply. We don't believe God can protect us. We don't believe God can heal us. We don't believe God can deliver us. We don't believe God can take care of us. If we don't do anything, deity is not going to do everything for us. God is not going to uh, do that which we hope he can do. And so you depend upon yourself. You even make yourself greater or stronger than God. <clears throat> that is wrong. God exerts sovereign influence in many individuals' lives. Not every individual, but in many individuals' lives. He decides to choose. Not because he cannot do, uh, exert uh, in every individual, but uh, he decides to exert sovereign influence in many individuals' lives. Not every individual, but in many individuals' lives. But uh, this sovereign influence that God exerts no way negates or overrides this is sovereign influence that God exerts. No way negates or overrides the free will of that individual. That is the complex part of it. God to exert an influence in an individual's life and yet not override an individual's freedom to exercise their will. Uh, that is uh, something great. Is it possible that God could exert a sovereign influence in an individual's life and yet not touch that individual's free will to where when this individual acts they are totally responsible for their own act. Is it possible that God can exert a sovereign influence 
in an individual's life and yet not touch that individual's free will to where when this individual acts they are totally responsible to God for their own act. God can exert an influence, a sovereign influence in an individual's life and yet not touch that individual's free will to where when this individual acts he's acting on his own free will yet God exacts a sovereign influence his right complicated right there how God can exert a sovereign influence in an individual's life and yet not touch that individual's free will. To where when this individual acts, he's acting out of his own free will. And therefore, he's responsible to God for that act or for that action. So, this is so because why, why are they responsible to God for that act, action? Because it was done at their own free will and thus they are accountable for their conduct. You see the wisdom of God, the working of God, exerting a, for a, a, a sovereign influence to some extent there is where that sovereign influence stops. It doesn't touch the individual's free will. And yet, so, because it, does, it doesn't touch the individual's free will, he is responsible for the actions that he does. He's responsible to God for the actions that he does. I would I can give examples probably they would not be perfect examples. Many of us, all of us, have, we have people that have influenced us. When we were going to school, I remember there are our teachers those days they dressed well. They dressed like gentlemen. They tucked in their shirts. They were clean shaven. Uh, they, uh, that was a real uh, good looking. And some could put on a pair of shorts, but the way they had ironed their clothes, they dressed so well. And the way they marched, and you could look at them day by day, the way they conducted themselves, the way they carried themselves. It was so nice that later on as we were growing, uh, some people said when they were asked, what would you like to be in life? Many people said, I would like to be a teacher. They are making their own, they are exercising their own free will. But do you know, the schools they attended, in the school, that was the influence, they saw how nice it was um, to be a teacher, how good it looked, how they stood, the way they marched, uh, the way they carried themselves, that influence. Uh, this person makes a decision of his own free will. I want to be a teacher. And he will be responsible whether he will be a good teacher, whether he will make it in life properly or not, will enjoy life or not. Uh, he will suffer or he will gain by that decision. But the influence he got is what he saw in the school he attended. He might not be a perfect example, but somehow uh, 
you can have an idea uh, where uh, like a young man uh, they can be in a school or in a college and uh, he greets this young lady uh, it's very kind where there is need to help they, he helps um, greets her very well and behaves himself very well like a gentleman um, and behaves in such a way that if one time this young man suggests that young lady the young lady exercising her own free will will say yes but there was influence uh, probably gifts probably helping where things were hard so those might not be perfect examples but God exercises sovereign influence in an individual's life just to a point that sovereign influence does not negate or does not override the individual's free will to where when this individual acts he's acting out of his own free will and because he's acting on his own free will he is responsible to God for his actions that's the way it works so can an individual free exercise their free will to do the bidding of God not knowing they are doing the bidding of God can an individual question freely exercise their free will to do the bidding of God not knowing they are doing the bidding of God it's like when we you decided to get saved you decided when they asked how many want to be saved after maybe the gospel had been preached or even by yourself and you say I wanted to be saved you don't know that you are doing the bidding of God you are just exercising for you you know you are exercising your free will and yet behind that there has been a sovereign influence up to some extent to where the outcome is according to God's will it was God that influenced them to freely exercise their will in that matter where you exercise your free will to do the bidding of God it was God that influenced you to exercise your will in that matter and when you exercised your will you actually did the bidding of God so not every individual and not every individual's life is under the control of God when it pertains to the unfolding events that God is working in the earth so what do we mean if an individual is needed by God God can influence that individual or if an individual God gets in God's way God can influence that individual for God needs you wants you in the ministry he wants you to serve maybe in the singing you are a good singer he wants you to support the work of God 
If God needs you, God can influence you. Oh, God has his work in the earth. If you get into God's way, God then will influence. Like Apostle Paul, before he came, became Paul, he was getting in God's way. God wanted the, the gospel to spread. But Paul was killing the disciples. He was even going to foreign lands with the letters, foreign towns, to persecute any person that believed in this new gospel, in what Christ had established. So Paul got in God's way, and therefore God had to act. God doesn't touch every individual. That's one thing we should not because he can't. He decides. He may not touch you. And you do everything that you want. But when you get in his way, when you get in the way, that's when he can act. How is an individual saved? An individual is not saved by himself because a dead man cannot resurrect himself. Why do we say a dead man? One time we will have a lesson on how our spirits died and we, we are walking dead men. Man is made up of three parts, the spirit, the soul, and the body. Before the fall, there was a divine life flowing to, to us through the spirit. That divine life could come and touch the spirit. Then the spirit could energize or influence or activate the soul. And the soul is made up also of three parts, the intellect, the sensibilities, and the will. And so, when the spirit could influence, activate, or energize the soul, then that affected how Adam thought, how Adam analyzed the things, it affected how Adam felt, how he could feel <clears throat> after God. Then it affected his actions, the will. But when man sinned, when Adam sinned, that divine life was cut off. It is that divine life that was making the spirit alive. So when that divine life was cut off, the spirit died. We continued living, but we were left to life that comes through the natural senses, the eye gate, what you see, life coming from what you see, what you taste, what you feel, what you hear, uh, all these through all the five senses that you know. So we were now relegated to just natural life <clears throat> that was coming through the five senses. But our spirits died. Why did our spirits die? Because that divine life that was coming from God and touching our spirits and the spirits energizing the soul and so affected our thinking they affected our feelings, they affected our uh, actions, that divine life was cut off. And being cut off, the spirit died. So we are walking dead. And so that's why he say, after the fall, an individual is dead. We are dead. Because 
we came after the fall. So we are walking dead, spiritually speaking. We can do everything, but we are just in the natural. In the natural. We are not spiritual. We are just in the natural. We can walk, we can work, we can do a lot of things. But spiritually, we are dead. So when Adam and Eve sinned, all their posterity fell with them. Adam was the federal head of the human family. Adam was the federal head of the the human family. All the apostolity, Adam and Eve, fell in them. All their posterity fell in them. And when you turn to Ephesians, Ephesians here, chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The word quickened, and you hath he quickened. Quickened means a resurrection of the inner man, a resurrection of the spirit that died. This means a dead soul becoming alive because when the spirit, when life flows to the spirit, then the spirit influences the soul and the soul becomes alive. And therefore, that is speaking in other tongues. When are we resurrected? When we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So, is it possible for a dead man to assist in his own resurrection? The answer certainly is no. When it comes to salvation, the initial phase of salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a dead man can't assist in his own resurrection. Dead man can't assist. They can't help in his own resurrection. A dead Lazarus couldn't assist in his own resurrection. He couldn't resurrect himself. So, we continue. However, no one is forced to serve the Lord. Nobody is forced to serve the Lord. Let's look at Romans 10 here. And verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With the heart man believeth. To believe with the heart man believeth. To believe is an exercise of your free will. That's why we are saying that nobody is forced to serve the Lord. With the heart, man believeth. That believing with the heart is an exercise of your own free will to believe on the Lord or to turn to the Lord. No one made us accept Jesus Christ. When they asked how many want to be saved, we freely, an exercise of our own free will, we put up our hands. I want, I want, come forward. We moved when we were called to the front. No one made Paul accept the Lord. No one, not only us, but even Paul. And yet, 
God was influencing Paul to accept the Lord. That's what we have been talking about. God exerted a sovereign influence in Paul's life up to some extent, not touching Paul's own free will to where Paul exercised his own free will <clears throat> to accept the Lord, to get saved. So, God was influencing Paul to accept the Lord. It is impossible <clears throat> for a dead man to turn to God. Completely impossible for a dead man to turn to the Lord. In Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, uh, we want to read these scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. After the fall, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. A fallen man cannot make a decision to serve God. A fallen man. We fell in Adam. When Adam disobeyed, being the federal head, we fell with him. We fell in him. So, a dead man, when it comes to a decision to serve God, when it comes a decision to do the will of God, a dead man cannot make that decision. When we make decisions, we that have fallen, we that have sinned, we the sinners, the decisions we make are wrong decisions, not decisions to serve God. That's why he says, verse 11, that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. On your own, dead man, you cannot seek God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. None. Fallen man, a sinner, cannot do good. That's why as we go through this lesson, you are going to see that we don't need to boast. Truly, we exercise our will but had not God to make, to exert a sovereign influence, <clears throat> wouldn't have made the right decision. So he said in verse 13, their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used the deceit. The poison of asips is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. So, the righteousness that existed in Adam and Eve uh, they lost it through rebellion. The righteousness that they had before the fall, <clears throat> Adam and Eve lost it through rebellion. <clears throat> Pardon me. They disobeyed. They were told not to partake of fruit of a certain tree. They went ahead and partook of that fruit. So the righteousness that they had before the fall, they lost it through rebellion. And losing their righteous standing before God, when they lost that righteous standing before God, they were 
incapable of righteous conduct after the fall. They were incapable of righteous conduct after the fall. A dead man doesn't seek after God. A sinner doesn't seek after God. If you sought after God, it is because somewhere God exerted a sovereign influence to a point to where when you exercised your own free will, you made a decision to get saved. Otherwise, a dead man doesn't seek after God. You can talk to some people from now, from now on to the second advent, and then they will never accept the Lord. There are people you can talk to day by day until Jesus comes and they steal their hearts will be hard. That is because God has not exerted. That's why we said he doesn't exert in every individual. He doesn't exert for a sovereign influence in every individual. You can talk to some people. You say, I have talked to that gentleman for years, but that man, his heart is hard. I can have talked to that lady. I've talked to that workman of mine. I've talked to my OB. We were with him uh, for four years. I tried to witness to that individual. Uh, we were in the same class, also again in the same house. But the man hardened his heart. He refused to get saved. That's what happens. We now understand God did not exert a sovereign influence in that individual. You can talk to them. You can show them how good salvation is, how wonderful it is to be saved, but they will harden their heart. So, we see, as we read in those verses in Romans chapter 3, 11 through 18, those are basic conditions of the sinners, those that are <clears throat> outside the church. In Ephesians, down to Ephesians here, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, the wages of sin is death. Has quickened us together in Christ by grace in our saved. We were dead, even when we were dead in sins. The wages of sin is death. We were dead in sins. Has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, this did not somehow put God in debt to them or to us that came after Adam. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, this did not somehow put God in debt to them or to us because Adam and Eve exercised their own free will to disobey God. He gave them, he told them, gave them a commandment to was either to obey or to disobey. So, they chose to disobey. When you are given an exam and you fail, uh, the examiner 
is not indebted to you. You exercised, you did yourself, you exercised your will to answer those questions. You should have read, you should have been thorough in your reading to pass. You were given an opportunity if you passed, you would have been promoted. But because you fail, you can't blame the examiner. And so we are going to study more uh, this subject. We have just started, but we have discovered so many good things. How God can exercise a sovereign influence and yet not touch your free will. Thank you for listening. Continue to listen in the next service. God bless you. Amen.